Genesis chapter 3 this morning, Genesis chapter 3. I wonder if you've ever been uh, watching, kind of picked up at the end of a movie, and as you're seeing uh, the scenes, seeing the storyline, you wonder, this doesn't make sense. Why, you've missed some part of the story, and evidently it was important enough to not give you an understanding of the end of the movie. This could take place in a movie, in a show, in a book, in an article, in a conversation. You join in a conversation, you're like, what in the world are they talking about? This doesn't make any sense here. In a very real way, if we don't understand Genesis chapter 3, we misunderstand the rest of the Bible. This is how important this is to understand what took place here. Because the first two chapters, everything is great. God has created the world. Everything is perfect. But now something takes place in chapter 3 that will forever alter the course of mankind, the course of this world. We looked last week in how, though everything was perfect in the garden, Satan had already fallen uh, and from, from a perfect angel to a, a Satan. And he's opposing God and he tempts Eve there through the serpent and makes her to question God. So ultimately she gives into these temptations and she chooses to disobey God. And she does the one thing that God told them not to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she gave to her husband with her, and he also ate, purposely choosing out of love uh, to identify with his wife and to disobey God. And so then, as a result, both of them immediately were ashamed. They realized that they were naked uh, because in, in their actions there, they had a shame about them. And then they were guilty. They hid from God. So I described last week like the kid who takes the cookies and eats them in the closet because he doesn't want his parents to see. So too they hid when God came to spend time with them, which evidently seems to be the pattern that he would come and be with them in the, uh, they would be in God's presence and walk with them in the Garden of Eden. What we see here after they have sinned is how God chooses to respond to their sin. And this is patterns that we see how he chose to respond to mankind's sin, particularly here of Adam and Eve. But we see patterns of how God responds to us in our sin. And so we want, we want to learn from this today. How does God respond to sin? Adam and Eve have sinned against God. What is God going to do? First of all, God gives an opportunity to confess their sin. God gives an opportunity to confess their sin. He comes to them. And this is amazing. This is a pattern of God throughout Scripture. He comes to sinful mankind. That's what he did. He showed his love for us while we were still sinners. He sent Jesus. And this is the beginning of this. God came to spend time with Adam and Eve, and they hid from him. And so he asks a really a general question there to the beginning verse 9. Where are you? And he highlights Adam first, and he asks him, and Adam describes how he had hid from uh, the Lord because he was, he was naked, he was afraid. And so the Lord asks a follow-up question, who told you that you were naked? This wasn't uh, anything that you realized before, so what changed? And then he asks a very, really pointed question, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? It shows us that they, God gave them a clear command. 
not to eat of this. And so to go against this would be disobedience. It would be breaking a command of God. And then Adam here responds in verse 12 uh, as uh, blaming the woman. And so too, marriages have had blaming sessions ever since. He blamed the woman. Notice he also blamed God. The woman that you gave me. Before, when God brought Eve to Adam, he thought this was the best gift ever. And now quickly, he was blaming God. Yeah, that woman that you gave me. And notice what the last two words of verse 12 say. I ate. What does he do? He front loads, passes the blame to someone else, to the woman, to God. Well, if this wasn't this way, and then he quietly admits his own actions at the very end. God gave him an opportunity to confess his sin, and he blamed others and minimized his own actions in this. Then the Lord speaks to the woman in verse 13 and asks her, what is this you have done? And she picked up really quick, okay, I can blame, Adam blamed. So she blames the serpent. And serpent deceived me and I ate. And the serpent did deceive her. But yet, the certain serpent didn't cause her to sin. Satan never causes us to sin. He tempts, but we, when we sin, it is our own choice. Otherwise, it is outside the realm of, of moral. We're just, in a sense, robots if Satan can make us do things. And so, uh, they, they were, Eve was responsible for her actions, even though she was deceived there. And the Lord... Uh, asking her this, I gave her this opportunity to confess her sin, and she too blamed the serpent. She blamed someone else. You know, we're pretty alike to Adam and Eve. How often do we, in our sin, when we're confronted with it, how often do we blame others? How often do we blame our circumstances? How many apologies are essentially non-apologies? I'm sorry for what I did, but you did this or this, 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 and we're trying to minimize our actions. What the Lord wanted from Adam and Eve, what the Lord wants from us is when he shows his presence and for us to admit the things that we have done that are wrong and to confess our sins to him. He doesn't want us to hide from him, Sometimes we think that we can do that, but we can't hide from God's presence. Rather than running from God and trying to hide, he wants us to come because if when we come to God, there is the way for us to be forgiven. And I think a great example of this is in the life of Peter. Remember the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied Jesus three times. I mean, he denied that he even knew Jesus at all. And so Jesus, Peter, we see, read him going to the tomb. He's finding out about Jesus. We don't know all of, of Jesus and Peter's interactions. We know some of that after Jesus rose from the dead. But in John chapter 21, there's a very significant exchange where Peter's going fishing, perhaps trying to go back to his old way of life. And Jesus appears on the shore, tells him where to catch a lot of fish. And the moment that Peter realizes that's Jesus on the shore, he hops out of the boat and he goes toward Jesus. He doesn't run from Jesus. He runs to Jesus or swims to Jesus. 
And that's, I think, the response and that God wants us to have, to come to Jesus when we have sinned. And what does Jesus do for Peter? He forgives him those three times. He says, I still have work for you to do. When you sin, do you run from God or do you run to God? Do you try to hide your sin, minimize it, push it down, blame others? Or do you confess your sin to God? God pursues sinners. And when he pursues you, he wants you to admit your sin, to see that is wrong, and to ask for his forgiveness. He wants us to know that freedom from the guilt and the shame of our sin found through our faith and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He wants us, as 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do you do when you are confronted about your sin, when you realize it? Do you go to God or run away from him? God gives an opportunity to confess sin. Second, God tells of the consequences of sin. He starts with the serpent, and he says there in verse 14, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So perhaps the serpent had legs before that, but here he is on the belly, and eating dust is a symbol of humiliation. And so the serpent, as an animal, is cursed more than all the other animals. Notice the other animals are cursed. And as uh, we'll see in just a little bit, all the earth is placed under a curse, including the animals here. And so the serpent is cursed. And then he goes on and says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman. I think there he's not just talking about the serpent, though many people have a strong dislike for snakes. But rather, I think he's talking about Satan here. He's saying, I'm going to put a hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, and then Eve, and between your seed and her seed. And so let's think about this here. How does, how does Satan have any seed? As we look in uh, the Bible, the angel is a, an angelic a spirit being, a fallen being. He can't have descendants. But yet, as we look into God's word, say in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said, you have your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So there, a descendant or is a follower of Jesus, one who, or sorry, not of Jesus, of Satan, one who lives according to his ways, ruled by sin, living according in rebellion against God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 also says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So anyone who is uh, doing what is wrong, anyone who has rejected Christ is Satan's follower. They're on his side. And God is saying, I'm going to put a hatred, an enmity between the followers of Satan and the woman Eve, and between your seed and her seed. Now, it could be just her descendants in general, but as uh, the church and and history is, uh, even Jewish history has understood this to be a particular descendant of the woman, that is Jesus Christ. That this descendant would be born of the woman, as Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, and this would be the seed who would bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. 
to bruise or to strike at, to hit. Uh, the, the same word is used for the wounding, but the difference is the location. And we, if we think through it, a head wound is far more devastating than a heel wound. And I think what God is doing here in judging Satan, he's saying a descendant of Eve, that is ultimately Jesus Christ, she would deal Satan a death-crushing blow. Where would that take place? At the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan thought he had Jesus. But in reality, it was a heel wound. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And Jesus conquered Satan at the cross of Jesus Christ. His end, his destruction is guaranteed. Even though he has power, it is limited in this world. His destruction is guaranteed into the lake of fire. That's especially prepared for the devil and his angels And so here, God is giving hope, even in the midst of sin, that judgment of Satan is going to be uh, final. It it has already been determined, even here from the very beginning. Notice what the source of hope is. It's through judgment, judgment of Satan. We're never helped by eliminating these judgment passages in Scripture, but rather running to Jesus Christ, who is the source of of forgiveness from the judgment of God through his shed blood upon the cross. So this is sometimes called uh, proto-evangelism or gospel in seed form, just the beginning of that, but that hope is there that Satan's destruction will be guaranteed through the seed of the woman, ultimately Jesus Christ. What about the woman? What was her consequences? It says that she would have pain in childbirth. Uh, birth, that women, can you imagine giving birth to a child without pain? This is what the world would have been like without the curse. But now there is pain in childbirth. It is a, a hard, a very hard experience. And not only that, she, he goes on and says, your desire shall be for your husband. It's more than just saying that she wants to get married uh, but look across at chapter 4 and verse 7. The same word is, is used here. In chapter 4 and verse 7, the Lord is speaking to Cain. He says, if you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. So it's, like, it's there. What will you do with it? And it's desire, sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin wanted to rule over Cain. He says, Cain, you have a choice. What are you going to do with this? And so taking that thought in, help, gives us understanding, I think, into uh, Eve's desire. She desires to rule over her husband. As God has established marriage, he's established the husband to be the leader and to lead in love. As the end of the verse says, but he shall rule over you. But as a result of the fall, the woman wants to rule over her husband. She wants to be the one in charge. And so this marital conflict, he says, as a result of the curse, as, as they struggle to fight against God's intended rules, it doesn't come natural to live according to God's ways. Certainly he helps because of the work of Jesus Christ. But here he's saying marital conflict is one of the results of the fall, of sin being in the world. What about for Adam here now? Adam 
Because he has listened to his wife, because he has sinned, he's ate of, ate of this tree, the ground now is cursed for your sake. What would have been like to take care of the Garden of Eden with no difficulties? That's not our reality. Now there's thorns and thistles. There's diseases that we have to fight against in the crops and the fields and the soil. And so what God is describing for Adam is that life will be hard. All the work that you do will be met with all these difficulties. And you're going to struggle to till the earth to get enough food for yourself. And just work is going to be an ongoing struggle for you. It's going to, in the sweat of your brow, verse 19, you shall eat bread. I mean, how many of us, as we set out on our plan for the day, if all goes well, this is what's going to happen. And what do we know? Everything doesn't go well. And we have to meet all sorts of difficulties and problem solve. And, and that's part of what God wants us to do. But this is the reality. Work is now hard because of the fall. Uh, planting a garden, being a farmer, uh, fixing something, building something, it's all hard because of the fall. Notice what else God says for Adam, and thus also for all mankind. In verse 19, till you return to the ground. Death has now entered the world. That was not part of God's original plan, but he said this would be the consequence if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would die. And that was the very thing the serpent said, you're not going to die. That's not really true. God's word always comes true. And death had entered the world. Yes, they didn't heal over and die right there, but they began to die. And Genesis chapter 5 tells us ultimately of Adam's death. There would be physical death one day as a result of the fall. We've already seen the aspect of spiritual death. As Adam and Eve hid from God, there was a death to their relationship as they hid from God when he came to spend time with them. And there would, if they rejected God, there would be one day eternal death in the lake of fire. And these three aspects of death, the physical death, the spiritual death, and eternal death are what each of us deserve. But God, as a result of sin being in our world, the consequences of sin, Likely Paul had this in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. This is what each of us deserve because of our sin. Finally, I want us to think about the earth being cursed. The ground, cursed is the ground, the earth. Uh, and Romans chapter 8 speaks of the curse, the whole world being under the curse. Things break down. Things don't get better and better if we leave them alone. They break down, they get rusty or moldy if left to themselves. And this is all the implications of the, the world being cursed, the ground being cursed. We don't have to look far to see vivid reminders that are, we live in a sin-cursed world. That things are not as God originally intended, but we rather have weeds Work is hard. Childbirth is painful. We need hospitals because of sickness and disease. There's conflict in marriage. It's not easy. And there is many sicknesses in our world. There is disease. There is death in our world. 
Every time we see these realities, it's a reminder that sin has been in our world. The consequences of sin, uh, they are still there because we live in this sin-cursed world. So God described the consequences of sin, not only for Adam and Eve, but we still bear these consequences. Our world's been affected in so many different ways. But he also provides a mercy in the face of their sin. God provides mercy in the face of their sin. How does he do this here? You see some indications here. He's already given the hope that Satan's demise would be guaranteed in verse 15 through the seed of the woman that is ultimately Jesus Christ. And Adam, I think, had some of this hope for the future because what did he call his wife? Eve, verse 20, because she is the mother of all the living. He understood that they would continue to live and that they would have children. Why? That God would allow them to continue on, that life would continue. There would be a future for them. And he names his wife Eve in faith. Furthermore, we see the provision from the Lord for tunics or clothes for Adam and Eve. And notice what he made them of. There in verse uh, 21, he said, tunics of skin, the skin of animals. And so in order for him to make these clothes for them, some animals had to die. And I think here, at least, it's a picture of what God is going to do in salvation, a picture of what God is going to do through the animal sacrifices, that through blood that was shed, as, as the one would come to God in faith and the animal would be, blood would be shed, God would clothe them with his righteousness. And I think this is a picture of this here, that what God is doing, he's saying, there's a picture of forgiveness, that he's forgiving Adam and Eve, and he's clothing them with his righteousness. And this is expounded upon and, and um, explained in so many other ways throughout Scripture, ultimately through Jesus Christ who shed his blood upon the cross so that we could be forgiven, much more so that we could be clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ through our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And I think he's giving the, the foundation, the beginning here of this, Truth, he's providing mercy that they did not deserve in the face of their sinfulness. And what else does God do? He denies them access to the tree of life. I think this is a mercy of God. He says, you've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the difference between good and evil. Not that that makes them like God. There's much more to God than that. But he did not want them also to eat of the tree of life. That then they would, in their sin-cursed bodies, live forever. This indicates that they probably hadn't eaten of, of the tree of life before then. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. So he expels them out of the garden. And out of the garden, they would, work would be hard, life would be hard. And they would one day die But for the believer, as we think through this, death is also a mercy. As we live in this life, we are in our sin-cursed bodies. As much as we try to grow in Christ, we still sin. 
We still struggle with our desires, our wrong desires. We still face the consequences of sin with sickness and death. And death is indeed horrible. It is what God has not designed in the world in the beginning, the consequence of sin. But for the believer, death is what ends this life and takes us into the presence of God where there is no more sickness, no more sadness, no more pain, no more sorrow. There's no more effects of sin in heaven. Sin is a, or heaven is a perfect place, free from all presence of sin in any of its effects. And so God, by placing the limits of the end of Adam and Eve's life, that they would not live forever on this earth, was saying that a mercy, that he would offer the way of forgiveness for them and for everyone else to be able to come to God, to know him forever and ever. Death will be conquered through the blood of Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, speaks about there's hope even in the midst of death. Death will one day be no more. But I want us to see this. In the face of the consequences of sin, the judgment for sin, what does God do? He offers mercy. And that is the pattern throughout Scripture. And and many times people don't want that mercy. They reject God. They reject Jesus Christ. But you see this again and again when God says this is going to be the judgment. Here is the mercy of God as well. And this is for us today, having looked at the consequences of sin, each of us deserve to die. We deserve to be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. But have you turned to God for mercy? Have you turned to God as the God who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus to be the Savior? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone as your Savior? Then you have that hope, that assurance, that confidence that when death comes, you have an eternal life with God in heaven. And moreover than that, God, through his presence, provides help for us as we live in this sin-cursed world. We need to see, as we look around at our world, it's not the world that God originally intended. It's one that's been affected by sin. We live in this sin-cursed world. And there's struggle, there's hardship. There's also the mercy and grace of God available to us. To help us in this life, but then also to bring us home to God in heaven through those who have called upon his name for salvation. May this be your hope, your confidence today that Christ is your Savior, that you have a joy and a peace in him.